As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hello and welcome to Last Jedi on the Left podcast. Uh, for this episode, I am joined by a fellow railway man podcaster in Steve. Hello, how are you? Yes, not too bad, thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll jump straight in, I suppose. Um, we were deciding because I know you're a, you're a also a, along with follower of the best football team in the world. Um, you're also a film fan. We'd had odd conversations here and there. Yeah, I'm a massive kind of, my wife calls me a nerd, but I'm a massive sort of sci-fi horror kind of, they're my, they're my kind of real niche. I like a bit of everything, but sci-fi and horror are my particularly nerdy kind of pastimes, and uh, they're ones that I can kind of give you lots of nerdy facts and details about. Yeah, so... Um... Like, given the name of this podcast, it was going to be... We were on safe ground there, then. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just on safe ground, yeah. I'm, I'm a closet I'm a closet nerd, it's fair to say. Although my wife says I'm not a closet, I'm clearly out in the open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, say about the same there, really. Although, like I say, I'm not, not, not really in the closet either, so... Um, but, yeah, we sort of talked about it, and, and you mentioned um, you're a big fan of, of John Carpenter films. So I thought about it a little bit and I thought, well, what's going to be my my pick of those, I suppose? And didn't really narrow it down too much either because I was also still still plenty to choose from. But I've always had a little bit of a soft spot for this one. So we sort of came to agreement on They Live. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Carpenter's my favourite director. Um, he's peaks and troughs. I'll blame my cards on the table. I've never watched Starman. I have no intention of watching Starman. As far as I'm concerned, that is not Carpenter. That is diluted Carpenter, made for the buck. I want the Carpenter of the little girl being shot at point blank range, queuing for ice cream and assault on Precinct 13. That's the Carpenter I want, not Starman. So that's my thing. Uh, love, love his films. Aside from Starman, never seen it, never will. That's fair enough. I think, I mean, there's, there's quite a few. Um... I guess gaps that I haven't sort of watched all of his films yet. I do. I, I intend to get around to a lot of them, but for me, like Carpenter was was kind of always um, Escape from New York and Halloween. Those are the two for me, kind of you know coming up a little bit. And then when I got into films a little bit more, then it would be I, I watched They Live because you kind of. Um, you can never get away. We'll get into it a little bit more, obviously, but we can never get away from that image of the the aliens or such from it. It's kind of everywhere. So I kind of had to seek that out. And, and The Thing, I think, is another kind of brilliant film that was another one that I'd kind of come around to. Um, but then recently, you, like you've mentioned, as you've mentioned there, that the uh, Assault on Precinct 13 was one I'd not watched. Vaguely aware that there was a remake of it, but I'd never watched that either. Um, so I watched that quite recently and uh, on your recommendation pretty much. And that was a really good experience as well. I really like that one. So, Yeah, I'm a big fan. And of course, that to me, Assault and Precinct 13 introduces that kind of iconic Carpenter sound as well, which interestingly, They Live 
doesn't really have, but a lot of those early films have got that throbbing sort of electro carpenter soundtrack that I also absolutely love. I love Escape from New York soundtrack, Assault and Precinct 13 soundtrack. Love that one as well. But, uh, but yeah, and then the later stuff, it goes off the boil a bit. Big Trouble in Little China is bonkers, but I love that film. That's hilarious. And to me, the last time he's interesting is in the mouth of madness. After that, there's a few kind of half-hearted attempts, but in the mouth of madness is the last time to me he was an interesting filmmaker. And I think he spends a lot of his time now computer games, and he did a tour the other year of all of his um, soundtracks and played them all live, which was would love to have gone, but I couldn't get there. Yeah, I was going to say I understand he's. he's- like obviously he's quite famous for doing all the scores and stuff. But I think he sort of leans into that a little bit more now, doesn't he? Than than he yeah. perhaps used to. Yeah, think, that was a tour. I say playing all of them, really. I think. Yeah, I think the most recent one of his I've seen is probably Vampires. Yeah, uh, I think, wasn't a huge fan of that. No, I think I think the I forget what, you know I forget what it's called now. The film set on Mars. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it yeah. Ghosts of Mars, is it? Something Ghosts like of that? Mars. I think there's little moments in it when you can see, in my opinion, the genius of the 80s and the kind of early 90s. But um, by the mouth of madness, is, to me, is beginning to lose his way a little bit. There's been a lot of kind of commercial failures that have, I think, affected him. But, um, yeah, Prince of Darkness is worth a mention as well. And there's a lot of kind of cast crossover from Prince of Darkness to this as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah, because he has got his uh, his guys as such as well, hasn't he, for a large part? Which, yeah. I mean, apart from, uh, there's obviously um, Keith David's in this, and obviously from uh, like from the thing as well. But other than that, there's, it's kind of this one seems a little bit like it's a little bit different. Like there's no Kurt Russell, there's no Donald Pleasance, there's no you know a lot of the the regulars in there. Jamie Lee, he does have. George, this is this is where my nerdiness comes in. He's got George Buckflower, who pops up cameos in a lot of his films, and uh, Peter Jason, who I think pops up in The Mouth of Madness, and has got a big role in um, Prince of Darkness as well. So he's kind of got his later, ca- and he gives these guys a bit more to do um, in this one, but they're normally kind of cameos in his films. So he's got his a few of his to do list, but not his not his big hitters there. Right, I see. That's fair then. So, um, what's your sort of, I guess, like say, what's your memories of first time seeing this? I, if you have, yeah, I have because I didn't, I didn't see it. I think it comes out in nineteen eighty-eight. I think I'm right in saying, yeah. Um, and I didn't see it on original release, and I became aware of it. There was, um, there was a series on BBC Two. I remember it vividly. Late, late nights on a Sunday night called Movie Drome that was fronted by. Alex Cox, the kind of eccentric director, Repo Man, I think is one of his most well-known films. And it kind of specialised in in cult kind of films on a sort of 9, 30, 10 o'clock slot. And I remember Escape from New York was on. So inevitably I set the VHS and wanted to watch it. And his his intros were kind of iconic. He did a little five-minute intro. And I vividly remember him talking about how Escape from New York he was going to show it, but it was actually one of Carpenter's least interesting films because the script never really got going. And I remember being a bit insulted, going, this is one of my favourite films you're dissing here, and you're playing it on your show. 
But in the same intro, he highlighted how Carpenter once made this, I think his words were, a quite brilliant film called They Live. And he kind of gave a synopsis of it. And that attracted my interest and thought, I've missed this. I haven't seen it. This is obviously pre-internet. Um, so I hunted down a VHS copy and uh, Alex Cox was right. And indeed, his his criticisms of the film, which can, you can still find the clip on YouTube, were absolutely spot on. Um, I guess we'll cover them more later. And I'll kind of reference some of the things that he said, because that five-minute synopsis of Escape from New York linked to They Live all those years ago still stands up now. And the man was right. He was yeah. absolutely right. That's fair. And like I say, it's obviously, uh, it's obviously stuck with you as well, quite quite well there, this sort yeah. of link that he's got. I think for me, it was always one of those that um, kind of aware of, like you say, the the aliens as such in it. And and then by extension, the sort of, I guess it, effectively there were memes before memes, effectively like the Shepherd Fairy and his Obey and, and all of that kind of Andre the Giant kind of uh, graffiti things that you'd kind of be aware of just in the culture and stuff. Long before I'd actually sat down and watched the film, I think for me, and then did actually sit down and watch the film and I was like, oh, this is it's brilliant, really. This is kind of exactly what you want from a sort of sci-fi B movie type thing for me. Yeah, and I think there's the um I cannot remember the name of it, but there's the the T shirt label, isn't it, that took the um took the obey. Um, when I was doing my research, I found what he was called, but I've lost the note now. There's there's a designer who's used that in, in various um, T shirts and things. Yeah, it has gone on to sort of be sort of everywhere kind of thing, hasn't it, yeah. really? Um, and like I said, I know I mentioned uh, like Shepard Fairy using it with the Andre the Giant thing, and we'll get on to further wrestler-related things later on. That's what the pros call a tease. <laughs> I like that, yes. Yeah. So, so, yeah, um, I've got it down, like I say, it was 4th of November 1988 when it came out. The uh, number one at the time in the US was Kokomo by the Beach Boys. Sort of zombie Beach Boys, I suppose, at that point, isn't yeah. it? But yeah. Um, and number one in the UK was Orinoco Flow by Enya. Oh, amazing. With Rob Dickens at the wheel. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the first time as well that I've sat down and I actually know both of those songs just off the top of my head as well. So I'm doing quite well on that one. Uh, the number one. Uh, the week before it came out at the US box office was, and this is going to be a bit of a weird connection as well, but it was Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Ah, yes, that's the one when they tried to steer the franchise back on track after they got rid of him for Season of the Witch. Yes, yeah, that's it. And, uh, well, they never looked back after that, did they? They never particularly looked forward either, really. (laughs) No, they definitely, definitely didn't look forward. In fact... They mostly looked back at just at the first one, I think. But there you go. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's kind of setting the, the scene for when it came out. Um, I, it's one of those sort of weird ones. There seems to be endless amounts of uh, trivia and stuff that you can to lead into sort of from the background. I don't know if you'd picked up on any. Have you got any funny stories there? Um, it's obviously written by Frank Armitage, which is actually Carpenter using a pseudonym and nicking a name from uh, Lovecraft. And obviously he's a big Lovecraft fan, which in the kind of in the mouth of madness kind of shows much later on. So it's written by Carpenter. Um, and I think this comes off the back of Big Trouble in Little China being a massive commercial flop. 
and essentially him being, I think I'm right in saying, bombed out of the major studios in Hollywood. And he kind of signed up for this three-picture deal, which I think didn't even get to the third picture because this was the second of the three and the third picture was never made. So it briefly makes number one. But obviously this comes after the back of a commercial failure of Big Trouble Little China. And of course, he's earlier been scarred by the commercial failure of the thing. Um, so he's had those peaks and troughs. But uh, but yeah, that to me is the, the context of the film. And the key thing is that, you know, Carpenter writes it from the um, short story, which I think is called Seven O'Clock in the Morning. It's something like that. Yeah. It's a, it's yes. a time yeah. in the morning. In the morning, yeah. In the morning, yeah. And it's from a short story, and, and my criticism of the film is it feels like it's from a short story. It's a short film. It's only just over 90 minutes, but I think it could be filleted, and I think its weaknesses, there's some padding here, and maybe maybe it might make more of a Twilight Zone episode than a full-length feature. But um, Yeah, that's that's the thing, I think, for me as well. I, as, as much as I, I really love this film, it... Uh, you can tell it's a short story because, like I say, there is a bit of padding in there, yeah. which I suppose you could say it's padding. I possibly would call it the best fight scene in a film ever. But, oh, that, uh, <laughs> that that is definitely not padding. That is an awesome six seven minutes. I love that. My, my padding is the Meg Foster subplot. I think if you get rid of the Meg Foster subplot, the film doesn't really suffer in any way, shape, or form. The highlight of that is the the, the shock of the bottle over the head and the the fall down the side of the hillside. But other than that, she doesn't really offer much as a character. You never really get where she's coming from. I think that that feels a bit like padding to me. Yeah. I feel like the film does kind of run out of steam a little bit towards the end as well. Yeah. It kind of limps towards what you guess is just going to be the obvious conclusion, I guess. Yeah. I was going to say on that on that fall down the hillside as well, and, and I guess to an extent with the, the fight scene, do you feel a little bit like they've kind of gone, well, we've got a guy who effectively does this for a living. Should we just, yeah, should we just, just get him to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I read a quote somewhere that um, Piper and Keith David actually had that fight for real, except for the punches to the face and to the nads. Every other blow apparently was real. Um, Cause you said, we've got, We've got um, Roddy, uh, Roddy Piper. We've got another big kind of physical actor. So let's let's use that and let's let's go with that that fight scene. I don't know how much truth there is in that kind of uh, speculation, but there is a suspicion that apparently the fight scene was real, except for the punches to those two places allegedly. That's interesting. This be uh, I don't think I'd want to be on a receiving end from either of them. To be fair, but uh, oh, big units, yeah, there. that's it. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny as well because like I say when when I was looking it up and I was looking up the um, the, the box office and stuff and I, I saw saw that it did actually go to number one in the US and I was kind of a little bit shocked by that because like as you mentioned you kind of associate this time of, of Carpenter with the sort of cult I guess cult films that never were financially successful this is one like say the thing and, and Big Trouble in Little China as well um, but then again you think how was this ever going to be all that commercially popular? It's a weird B-movie science fiction film with a wrestler in the main role and it's all about attacking the government and stuff like that. It was kind of a really odd mix. And yeah, I mean, I obviously, I like I say, I really like it, but it was a, it was a bizarre choice. I think for trying to make a more commercially successful film. I think. I think you said, did it come out in November? 
Yeah. So they sort of skirted the summer blockbuster as it was then, I guess. Maybe not in the tradition we have now. Maybe again, I can't. I can't really remember. I was never a fan. Are we maybe underestimating the appeal of Rowdy Roddy Piper in the late eighties? Is is he enough? to open the film to that level in maybe a, a quieter market that's November, perhaps? Possibly. Yeah, maybe you're onto something there. I mean, uh, he's a little he's a little bit before my time as Ruddy Piper. I've, I've always... So this is kind of one of the things I like. I've always kind of been interested in. Like, it, a lot more when I was younger, and then it kind of comes and goes at times, and sometimes I'll put it on and then not really pay attention to it for several years and stuff like that. But so I'm kind of aware of the, the characters and stuff, but like I say he was always a little bit before my time. So I never, he was never, I don't know, Hulk Hogan, like, you know, yeah. but, um, but yeah, he obviously must've been a pretty big star. And he yeah. seems, seems like quite an interesting personality as well, from what I can tell. I think so. Yeah. I mean, he was in, I know he was in, I think he's other, I have never seen it, but I'm so desperate to see it. His other film was Hell Comes to Frogtown, I think, um, which the title says it all to me. That's a film I want to see. Um, I don't know. I wasn't really into wrestling back then, obviously, particularly the the American sort of style. Um, I don't know how big a draw he was, but I guess surely he's the only reason that this film opened so successfully because it's such a quirky, hard sell, really. Um, And there certainly aren't many epic effects to splice into your trailer to tempt people through the door either, are there really? No, definitely not. Um, I I mean, uh, going on to to, uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown, it's also one I haven't seen. I was really looking forward to watching it once and kind of had it there because it was on, I think it was on Amazon Prime for a while. But then it was one of them classic things of, right, okay, I'll sit down to watch it now. You put it on and then it's gone from Prime and it's just not there anymore. So yes, I've also not seen that one, but um, yeah, I'll keep my eye out for it and let you know if it is back on there at some point. Perfect. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like say maybe that was it. Maybe that was uh, sort of the, the the key to what what people were turning up for, I suppose. Because like I say, otherwise there's there's kind of, I mean, Keith David's kind of well known, but you wouldn't. He's never going to be headlining a pitch. He's not going to draw audiences in. So yeah. Um, I guess one other thing I had picked up on in my notes was that apparently this film has gained a lot of traction between sort of far right people. Um, they're sort of assuming that the film would be that it was about uh, sort of like it was like an anti-Semitic sort of that the Jewish people control the world. And then John Carpenter came out very strongly against that in about five years ago now, saying that it was all about. It's actually all about capitalism. Absolutely, I had I had no idea that that was the case until I was doing a little bit of background, and I saw, as you say, about twenty seventeen, that the main man himself had to come out and defend the film. And as someone who was obviously has grown up with it to a certain extent, you know, I first I first watched it when I was sort of seventeen, eighteen. Clearly, to me, the target is that Reagan era capitalism. You know, note that Wall Street comes out the year before. And here's a very interesting double bill, Wall Street and They Live, um, might make a, a nice pair of films to watch. So to me, there's never any doubt in my mind what the target is. The target is that greed is good, capitalist kind of approach of a, a sort of mid to late 80s America and this ridiculous reinvention. I'm glad that Carpenter kind of came out of film retirement, really, to kind of knock it all back into touch. Good on him, really. It's his film. And it was clearly never, never made with that in mind. 
Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, even what, 30 years afterwards or however long it is, you know, still, he's still coming out and standing up for his, his art effectively. So uh, fair play to him. And like I say, I was, I was kind of with you that I, that thought never even crossed my mind until I read about it. And then I guess that probably speaks volumes about how we think and how different that is to those people who were trying to take it, I guess. Um, we'll kind of move on a little bit. So this is a difficult one a little bit for me because I feel like it could be half the film, but what are your favourite quotes that you've got from this one? Everyone's favourite quote is the bubblegum. Yeah. I mean, that, that is one of my favourite quotes ever. You know, I have come here to kick ass and chew bubblegum and I'm all out of bubblegum. Brilliant. Um, I quite like, there's a little scene between him and Frank at the building site. I think it's the end of the first day. Um, and I think uh, Nada says to Frank, white lines in the middle of the road, worst place to drive. Quite like that. Uh, and I do quite like, life's a bitch and she's back in heat. That's a great one as well, yeah. There's some great insults in the supermarket as well. Love the insults to the aliens in the supermarket. Like putting perfume on a pig. I may have muttered that a few times myself in my life. I'm ashamed to admit it. Um, only to myself, never to anybody else, but that's crossed my mind. There is there is some great bits in that, in that sort of when he first gets the glasses kind of thing, where he's like, uh, is it you, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. Yeah, it's really, yeah. And then... You take these glasses off, look like a regular person, but put them back on, formaldehyde face. Brilliant. The, the, the fun bit, the, the fun bit I had about the uh, the, the bubblegum bubblegum line. I think the first time I ever heard that, because I'm fairly certain it was lifted and used in Duke Nukem 3D. Yeah, it's in a game. I've never played it, but I've heard it's in a game, and people have attributed the quotes to the game. I'm like, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Give credit to Frank slash John slash Rowdy Roddy Piper, they're the people that first uttered and wrote this line. Yeah, definitely. Because, well, I say, I think that's where I came, I'm like, Duke Nukem 3D was basically like a Doom rip-off, but with, like, rude, rude bits in there, basically, and which, to me, at, like, I don't know, whatever age I was, 8, 9, 10, probably, <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic, you know, that was great. Um, but, yeah, that's the first time I think I ever heard it. So, obviously, it's been lifted and, and used quite a lot since. As far as I'm aware... And this, this is again internet trivia, but it's actually uh, an ad lib by Rowdy Ruddy Piper, and he'd oh, actually right. got it. He'd actually got it in like a written in a notebook, apparently, of, of things that he was going to use in his wrestling career. Because obviously, that is kind of a lot of like it's half written, half ad libbed a lot of that as well. Um, and he, he kind of brought the notebook in, and, and he kind of between the two of them, they went, okay, well. That one, that one fits your character pretty well, and, and then they went on to do it. And apparently, Rowdy Roddy Paper then went on to use it again in his in his wrestling career afterwards. So, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that he uttered it a few times in the ring, and and why wouldn't you? Such a memorable line. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah, you're not going to waste yeah. that, are you? Even oh, if yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Make it his catchphrase. Probably, I'd be surprised if it didn't end up on a t-shirt at some point. To be fair. Yeah, it's coming with those last exit to nowhere T-shirts on there, something like that. Surely there's a, a, a market for that. Has to be, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, like I say, it's a it's a great film. I don't know what other other notes you have on it. I think, to me, it's it's a brilliant film. It's not prime Carpenter. 
to me, Prime Carpenter is the thing. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween. Um, I think the first hour is absolutely mesmeric and phenomenal. After the first hour, like we've alluded to earlier, and like Alex Cox all those years ago said in his his critique pre uh, Escape from New York, it sags, it loses its way a little bit. There's the feel for that padding. We end up running down lots of corridors, firing lots of guns, and the plot almost feels like once uh, Nada makes that discovery and he's got the glasses, actually, what do I do now? You know, that, that's the payoff. The, the build-up with the homeless people and the shelter and the church and the speakers, It's there's so much kind of, so many clues in there and the build is phenomenal. I really love that first hour, but I just feel that after he makes the discovery, we, we, the plot never really recovers itself. There's some lovely moments. The fist fight is obviously top draw. Um, and I just, I do think it recovers itself for the climax. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carpenter's film, Carpenter's films to me are one of the key elements. Is is the ending and that payoff, and often quite sort of a quite negative, quite nihilistic ending. Like Escape from LA in particular, it's got a really, really downbeat negative ending, similar to um, Escape from New York. Um, and I think he pulls it together for the ending. And I read that Carpenter hates authority and he's really got no respect for authority and and when piper's shot and he gives a finger to the helicopter and the signal shot and then you see all the repercussions of it that to me was kind of that's almost him giving that finger to authority and i think after 20 minutes of losing its way suddenly at the end we find our feet again and there's that lovely kind of montage at the end of all the aliens being revealed um, and i remember sitting watching it with my dad um and that final shot was quite awkward for a teenage boy. wasn't really. I think it was the first time I watched it, um, and, I, and I just thought I'm on safe ground here. You know, I can't. It's carpet. Might be a bit of gore, but there's there's nothing to make me feel awkward as like a 17, 18 year old in front of my dad. Um, but there was. Yeah. So thank, saved thank it. You. Saved it right for the end. Saved it right for the end. And again, he's got the gag. You know, he loves to kind of. Escape from New York is peppered with names like Cronenberg and Romero. We've got that the the the, uh, the kind of almost Siskel and Ebert kind of critique, and one of them is revealed to be one of the aliens. So I think he pulls it back right at the end. You go, actually, yeah, this is a brilliant ending, and it almost makes you forget the twenty middling or so minutes before it. Um, and I think that's what, like we said earlier, that's where the problem of it being a short story comes from. You go, actually the short stories here i've never read it i don't know how it concludes but that that running around corridors meg foster we're back with the rebels or the rebels of court i, I was looking at that the other night and i watched it thinking there's got to be a moment when they can find the watch and then get the passageway and we can cut out 20 minutes of, of aimless stuff possible so to me yeah. yeah i think it's a nine out of ten carpenter for that first hour it's not 10 out of 10 carpenter like some of his films I think that's fair. I like. I, I do really like the ending, like you say. And I guess it's one of the things. Uh, particularly, I, I did notice that on the uh, the bit with the the two film critics, because obviously, uh, I think they are on the TV and they're halfway through slating John Carpenter yeah. himself, which is like obviously like a, a brilliant sort of moment. But it's also that is the first time that you see the aliens in color. Obviously, all the all the bits with the with the sunglasses on, where he you can see the aliens and such, they're all in black and white. And it 
it didn't strike me, I think, up until this last time I watched it, that that is, that is the first time you see them in colour, you see them sort of for what they properly are and stuff, and you go, oh, that's weird, kind of how iconic they are, that you don't actually see them properly until the last two or three shots. But I do love that, the one of, I say, the guy who's watching the TV in the bar and everybody sort of just turns around to look at him and he's just sat there like, what? what's, what's wrong? I, you know, you're right, that has never actually... Obviously, I have seen it, and it, I've realised, but it's never actually clocked before that that is the first and only time you see them. In yeah, right. Yeah, and I think for me, for me, the other sort of really kind of standout, I guess, moment in in the film is that first moment when he gets the uh, he gets the sunglasses. I think that I kind of, I guess, I don't really know how they did it, but the the f- effects of like just all the billboards being replaced with like the word obey and like you know the the money that's like. The money obviously is a bit easier to do. You just print out the fake money or whatever. This is your god or whatever it is that's on there. But just with, the, with all the billboards and everything that's kind of, you know, just all that. I think it's it's for its time, especially, I think it's a really good effect that he's got to go in there. I think it's really well done for a film that's clearly not a big expensive production as well. Yeah, I think you're right for the time and for the nature of the budget they probably had. I think those effects are, are, are pretty decent really. But it is. It's the first hour, but that that ten fifty minutes they are some of my favourite moments in cinema. When those glasses go on, that little sequence, and you know, and you've got the "This is your God" and the guy buying the paper, it's it's phenomenal. That that is one of the, the peak moments. I think one of my favourite moments in cinema. Yes, I agree. Um, so I think we are pretty much in agreement on this. I I think I probably do have it up there with the with the best Carpenter for me. That's it's. I accept your everything you've you've criticized it for. I, I do think it does run out of steam a little bit, and there is a little bit of padding in there for which is bad for quite a short film as well. But um, but that said, I think that that first hour, you know, everything with the, the bank scene and, and everything else in there is so good and so like enjoyable that I can sit that carries me through that that last half an hour at least. Yeah, and it is. I forgot to say actually, it is actually. I've revisited it and thought this. It's a western because Nadar, Nada, the man with no name, literally, yeah. arrives in town. And rather than the the electro throbbing soundtrack you normally get from Carpenter, you've got a twangy, almost westerny kind of feel. So it is, a, in some ways, to me, it's a it's a western. You know, the lone guy comes to town, solves the problems. The man with no name, he's almost got that kind of western feel. And I think he's a, he was a big um, Hawks fan, um, right, yeah. I think made some made some westerns, so um, he's he's got that flavour in there. But um, but yeah, to me, it's up there, but it's not up there with my my Carpenter masterpieces. That's fine. Well, uh, we might have to get you on for uh, for another one in the future, then. Unless you fancy something different, but we'll, we'll decide that later. Yeah, um, perfect. Yeah, so that that kind of moves us on to our um, the list that we have for this episode. Um, now, I guess a little sort of insight into everyone else. I, I sort of suggested this list at, at first because we were, we were kind of umming and ahhing about what subject we could do. And, and at first, you were a little, you didn't sound like you had much of a clue, clue on what, what else you could use for this. So we, we've picked um, films with wrestlers in, effectively. Um, but I, then it's kind of one of the things I think when you sort of stop and sit down and have a think that there's a lot more examples than you perhaps think originally. I initially thought 
I can't get five. And then I sat down and um, as you'll see, maybe I've bent the rules a little bit, but I have come up with five. Um, maybe not quite what the mission was, <laughs> but, they are, but they're certainly five films of wrestlers in them. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, don't leave us in suspense, I suppose. What have you got at, at five? Number five, I have, um, would you like the film first or the wrestler? Oh, we'll go the film. The film is Goldfinger. Okay. The wrestler is, I, I hope I say this, uh, uh, Harold Sakata, who plays Odd Job. Um, and I have picked this because this is my favourite classic Bond out of those early Bonds. And it features my favourite. And it's a hill. In this five, there are a fair few hills that I'm willing to die on. And one of mine is Connery is the best Bond. I grew up with Moore. I grew up in the sort of 80s watching Roger Moore and thought he was cool and he was the man. And then I started watching Connery and thought, this guy is different level cool. And he is also a brute as Bond. You know, he's, 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 a, he's a massive bear of a man. And Goldfinger to me is the peak of his Bondness. And it's got all the classic Bond staples. Um, and Sakata is again a, a, an amazing uh, Bond henchman, yeah. not the main man, but equivalent to the kind of Jaws, Richard Keel kind of guys from the eighties, and with his particular quirk, which is obviously the hat. Um, so to me, uh, number five had to be Goldfinger. That's um, it's a good shout. Like I say, it's so I've kind of I, I mean I grew up with I kind of grew up with I think all the James Bonds because like Brosnan would obviously have been the Bond when I was growing up. But like they were always on on the Sunday afternoon or whatever on on ITV probably or something. So I think I watched them all kind of you know regardless. And I think particularly those three, I'm always a little bit stuck myself on Goldfinger or From Russia with Love as being my favourite of those classic you know Connery Bonds. But um, I think like Doctor No is obviously slightly lower, but those first three I think they build and it. it's it's a really great sort of three three hour films there and uh yeah i must have like thrown hundreds of hats across rooms trying to trying to cut people's heads off or whatever how how did that go for you did it work no no i mostly just got told (laughs) to stop throwing hats around i think there you go so uh my uh my number five i've got is the princess bride who the wrestler in that is the aforementioned in the, in the main chat is Andre the Giant. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, one that like I was kind of aware of growing up, but I didn't actually grow up with it as such. And then came to it a bit later on and been like, oh, I've wasted years when I could have been watching this. This is kind of really cool. And like, just takes that fairy tale type thing, very tongue in cheek, and it's quite daft. And, and uh I mean, Andre the Giants. He doesn't do a lot. He's not the he's not the best character in it, but um, it's it's a good film. I really enjoyed it anyway, and and yeah, that was my uh, my number five at least. Cards on the table. It's one of my gaps. I've never seen it. Okay, which is a shocker. And I'm appreciate we're here talking about this particular film because there's another well known film that I haven't seen, but there are some gaps. Never seen it. It's on my list really, but I've just. I missed it at the time, and I must I must catch up with it. I think I, it's one of those films that I'm going to watch it and go, I know that quote, I know that quote, I know that quote. 100%, so that, yeah. yeah. 
I, I had that a little bit, like say, because I was kind of late to it coming thing. But even then, you, you sit there and you go, I know at least half of this film already through just everything else that you watch and, and stuff like that. So, yes, you almost certainly almost certainly have a similar experience, I think, to what I did with that one. Um, so, number four for you? Number four, it's another hill. And this one I will defend vigorously and I will die on this. And it's a film that you referenced uh, the other week in your seven podcast. Alien 3, Brian Glover, he was a wrestler. I have checked this. Brian Glover was a wrestler. Um, And Alien 3, the hill I'm going to die on is, it's not Alien, it's not Aliens. But you know what? It's bloody good, gloom-ridden, dark masterpiece that, that co- bit like they live it cocks up its final act which ultimately is a bunch of british character actors with their head shaved running around in the dark shouting at each other with a rather random alien perspective thrown in but at the death it redeems itself with um with sigourney weaver's sacrifice um but i love alien 3 people say how can you off newt and hicks in the credits i think screw that what a ballsy move that is to murder the two of the most popular characters in the previous film before the film has even started. I love the balls of that. Um, and I think it's a gloomy masterpiece. Yeah. I, I've always, I guess I've always kind of quite liked it as well. Like, like as you say, it's not alien. It's not aliens. It's never going to be them, but I think it's really quite good. And, and that sort of people criticize that move to, to kill off Newt and stuff. But then it also feels like, endless amounts of films have done that exact i mean i think the alien films have done that exact thing in the subsequent sequels and stuff so you know they they all kind of come around to it eventually in the end and um and yeah I, and i always like i say i always quite enjoyed it i thought it was quite a it's far better than a lot of the other films that have come out since as well so and there's a brilliance obviously there's there's the two cuts i quite like the assembly cut but i do quite like the original cut and the scene where the alien is born and they throw the bodies into the furnace and the two are intercut. It's a brilliant sequence, brilliant sequence. So gloomy um, and the antithesis of, I love aliens, but it's the exact antithesis of, of Cameron's, you know, uh, Vietnam in space, Marines, guns, hardware. You've got a bunch of slaphead British character actors running around shouting at each other. In a sort of weird space prison film as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think I'm, have to be due for a rewatch of this one as well because it's one of them that if you're ever going to put one on i generally you generally gravitate to the first two but yeah i think i think i do need to watch three again so um by the next one i had is uh is mad max fury road so i had that there's a guy i believe his name is i want to say nathan jones um and he was also a wrestler for a about 10 minutes, I think, in there. And it turns out he's actually a lot better as just being an absolutely huge bloke who doesn't speak a lot of lines in Hollywood um, than he ever was as a wrestler. So he makes more money doing that now, I think. But, um, yeah, he plays one of those very sort of, uh, I guess, like Road Warrior-esque guys that is just the huge, bulking kind of guy. But but um, very road for me, I think. So much to my annoyance, this one kind of passed me by at the cinema. Um and I think the first time I ever watched it was on, um, 
I think I was on a plane to America and I watched it on those tiny little screens you have in the back of the seat in front of you. And I was like, this was just a terrible decision. I've watched like one of the sort of biggest cinematic sort of films on the tiny little screen with tinny little headphones. Um, but then I've, I've watched it numerous times since on, on a proper proper format with proper surround sound and stuff like that. So yeah, um, made, made up for it. But um, yeah, it's again, a film that hasn't got a lot of story, much like we've kind of discussed it today, but um, one that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed it. I like it. I'm afraid I, I still prefer Mad Max 2. I, I really like Mad Max 2. I like the, the rawness and the strip down. And again, it's a, you know, it's a film with hardly any plot, hardly any dialogue. Maybe it's a kind of uh, um, a kind of sentimental thing, but a, a great film, Fury Roll, but I, I do prefer The Roll Warrior, the second one. Not a fan of the other two original trilogy. The first one I didn't really get. The third one's a bit overblown, but I really I love Mad Max 2, which coincidentally did appear on Movie Drone with Alex Cox doing an intro I seem to remember as well. Oh, very good. We're, we're very good at linking back to things today. Doing well. I think I, I can accept that as well. I think they're pretty neck and neck for me. Um, like I say the first one's a first one's a bit weird because it's just very different to all the others. It's, yeah. it's like not even really a post-apocalyptic film as such. It's just um, also I found out as well. So the first time I watched the original Mad Max, um, there was sort of everybody was talking, but they sort of had these really weird kind of Americanized accents, and I was like, "What is going on here?" Um, and I found out that. There is an American dubbing out there because in the original film, everyone's Australian accents are that strong that American audiences couldn't understand what was being said. Yes, I think I knew that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, uh, quick, quickly change over the audio track on the DVD or whatever <laughs> I'd got there. But yeah, the first the first one's, epic, I think, like most people, I came to the first one after seeing the second one, and it's just... It's just a disappointment because there's not actually that much action, and it and it feels like it doesn't even belong to the same franchise, really. It's very different. Miller, yeah, he really gets going with the second one. I mean, there it's a weird trilogy. The first one doesn't feel like it's part of it, and then the third one just becomes overblown, and it's a bit of a filmmaker disappearing up his own bottom job to me. It's just stick to the rawness and the strip down and what you've got in the second one. Yeah, the third one feels like it's just leaning a little bit too far into that, and. And also was trying to keep everybody happy because I think they were aiming more for like the PG-13 certificate, whatever it was at the time. So it was kind of a little bit... Hasn't it got a bunch of kids running around in it? I've not seen yeah, it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Mostly yeah. just remember Tina Turner. Yeah. But yeah, there you go. Uh, so what was, your, what was your number three? My number three is an obvious one, really, I guess. Um, hopefully I'll say his name right. It's Dave Batistuta. I believe that's correct. Batista. Um, Batista, Batista, yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm, I've turned him into an Argentinian footballer there. <laughs> yeah. um, um, Blade, uh, Blade Runner sequel. Um, I think he's only in it briefly, um, but I heard, I think I heard Mark Kermo talking about it, about how he almost carries the mood of that film and he sets the mood, the somber kind of feel for that film in those first five minutes before they go back to um, Los Angeles. Um but yeah, I agree. I think he's, he's he sets that film up brilliantly. He's such a great presence, and and I was very wary because Blade Runner is probably my favourite film of all time. And going in to watch the sequel, and after watching that opening sequence, I thought, do you know what? It's going to be all right. We're in good hands. Um, unfortunately, 
my uh, good lady wife had never seen Blade Runner and she promised me that we would go to the cinema to watch the sequel. So in the afternoon, she watched the first Blade Runner and to say she despised it would be an understatement. And I get it. She's not a sci-fi nerd and it was too dark. It was too claustrophobic. Harrison Ford, what's he doing? He's a detective who's not really doing much detecting. Um, And then we went to the cinema to watch the sequel, which she still hated, although not quite as much as the first one. So I I had to do a fair few kind of DIY tasks to recover things after that, it's fair to say. It's, you know what? So so I'll start off by saying I've also got this at my number three as well. So we've we've joined up there. Um, But but our sort of stories on this film are just remarkably similar. So like growing up, this was like, I think this is like my probably one of my dad's favorite films as well so like he would always like loved it um i think he saw it when it first came out and stuff like that and then as i've grown up they've just re-released various different versions of it as well obviously kind of you've got the the original and then the director's cut and then there's another cut and the final cut whatever and it was kind of like almost like a thing for like me and my dad to be like oh there's a new there's a new cut of Blade Runner out this weekend. Let's watch it. Let's, you know, and we must have sat down and watched it together like four or five times at least growing up with all the various different ones. So, um, so we had that, and like we got to the point where my dad had always said like, "Oh yeah, this is like his favorite film." This, that, and the other. And my wife was like, "Well, you know what? We'll give it a go then. We'll we'll watch it." And I was like, "Yeah, brilliant. I love it. Stick it on." And it must have been about 40 minutes in. I sort of look over and the phone's out and she's just just not interested. What's I was, I was like, what's, what's and she's like, it's just bad. I just really didn't get on with it whatsoever. And I don't think she's ever trusted my dad's judgment ever since, to be honest. Do you know what? It's it's a universal reaction. I used to teach, um, I taught media and film studies at my last school, A-level. Um, and we had to do a science fiction genre study. And I showed them, this was sort of must be in 2005 something like that so i showed them blade runner and we we couldn't get it in in one here and it was right at the end of term and they came in and said right, we're going to watch the second half of blade runner today group of about 12 because it was a level and they all to a person said please <laughs> please don't put that film back on and i said what do you mean they went it's just they said to me they all said it's just too claustrophobic and it's just too intense we just we can't we can't manage it. We don't want to watch it. It's just too much for us. So I had to knock it on the head and we use sunshine instead, which they absolutely loved, which is fair enough. Sunshine's brilliant as well, but they just couldn't get their heads around Blade Runner. And that, that was teens from very different generations. So I imagine if I was in that classroom now sticking on Blade Runner, I might, I might get past five minutes before they go, what is this we're watching? Yeah. I, I can probably imagine on that. Um, while we're on the on that subject as well, you mentioned before about you know your blind spots and your ever growing watch list and stuff. Well, Sunshine's on that for me, so that's one that brilliant. Soundtrack's brilliant. Again, it's a film that to me is no spoilers, but it's flawed because three quarters of the way through, it goes off in that direction. You go, oh, we're watching this film now. That isn't what I was expecting. I'll I'll let you know when I've seen it, and I can agree or disagree with you. But um, on on Mister Mister Batista, I, I figured I had to have one in there because I think for my money now, he might be the best wrestler turned actor. Yeah. Um. So it was kind of like which one I'm going to put in there. I thought about you know 
because obviously he's, he's Drax in the Guardians of the Galaxy film, so I thought maybe I could get that one in there, or I'm really quite like Dune that came out a couple of years ago. Um, I'm looking forward to the new one that comes out in that, so maybe that could be in there, or he was in one of the lesser James Bond films, Inspector. I thought about that, but then kind of landed on, even though he's not, like you say, he's not a massive role in this, this was probably the, the best film as well out of the ones that he'd been in. He's quite good. I've seen the, uh, I think it's uh, M. Night. Oh, here's, another, here's another pronunciation. <laughs> good luck. Shyamalan. 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 Sure. Knock, knock at the door. Um, taking a bit of a kicking critically, but I thought he's brilliant in that as well. I agree really. with you on that one. I, I thought the film was okay, but I thought he was really good in it. So I agree. Um, so actually, that's my number three as well. So we'll move on to your number two. My number two is Predator, Jesse Ventura. Um, who, uh, brilliant film, um, so many quotable lines in it and the, the numerous kind of predator follow ones have all, um, obviously dropped various, uh, quotable lines from, from the, its predecessor in there, but obviously none of them hold the candle to that eighties macho original, which again, and we, I mentioned that sunshine goes off in the direct, in other direction. You can start watching predator. If you didn't know. We'll ignore the bit of the spaceship, I think, at the start of the film. Yeah, yeah. Unless that's the thing I'm getting confused with. But for the first 20 minutes, you'll go, it's an Arnie action epic in the woods, in the, in the sorry, in, in, the, in the forest. And then suddenly it all goes a bit different after they get to the camp. But uh, I mean, Ventura is brilliant in it. Uh, I think he gets offed quite early, but he's got so many kind of macho, um, sort of hard man lines. He does a really good job in this film. I, I can't remember. Is it? Is it? Uh, Ventura, the one that's got the, the massive minigun that he's carrying around as well. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's it. Was my I think it just just missed my list, Predator, because it was also one that I had earmarked. Um, but yeah, great film. Like I say, for a good solid half an hour, forty minutes, you think this is just going to be you know Commando or any of them other kind of Arnie. You know, not that I'm necessarily dismissing them, but you know, it's, it certainly goes down one kind of thing, and then. It goes off a uh, goes off in a very different direction later on, like you say. So um, yeah, great shout! I really, really big fan of that one as well. So my number two, I've got, and again, sort of not a massive role in this one, but I picked uh, Sam Raimi's Spider Man. Uh, so the wrestler in question is uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage, who plays Bonesaw in this. Um, and it was one of them that, like, I obviously, as I mentioned before, that, that wrestling was kind of a, a big thing for me when I was quite young. So knowing, you know, Randy Savage and the the mega powers with Hulk Hogan and everything like that, and then uh, and then to see him showing up in this film, sort of in the early two thousands, you sort of go, oh, is that is that him? Is that, is that the same guy that I was watching, you know, ten fifteen years ago or whatever? Um, but yeah, yeah, and it's kind of obviously he's not in it too much, but I thought it was kind of a kind of a great little role for him, and uh, and, and obviously I'm I'm a big uh, comic book fan as well, so the original Sam Raimi Spider Man was possibly like the best of those early ones, I think for me. Yeah, good. I, I did. I enjoyed them all. Um, I think I prefer the second one to me is a bit more Raimi. I think there's some real little moments in there that are reminiscent of him. His kind of horror. Yes. Best. Yeah, yeah. Almost like he's allowed to 
to let a bit more loose in that one. Maybe they they restrained him for the first one because they wanted to get the franchise up and running. It's almost like they said, all right, Sam, we'll let the shackles off a bit in the second one for you. Um, But yeah, great. Third one, maybe not worth talking about. Not quite as good now. But but yeah, I I, I really enjoyed the first. I think maybe you are right. Maybe the second one is is better of those early Spider-Man ones, but kind of, I guess it was it was just with with the with the Spider-Man the first one and then the X-Men as well that came a couple of years before it. It kind of it got rid of that kind of uh, campy sort of very that you saw a lot in the late eighties and the early nineties of comic book films. So kind of, probably kind of led us to where we are now, where everything is a comic book film. But there you go. Yeah, I think I think it's it's funny with both of them is that arguably second film in both of those that you've mentioned is probably the better film but you have to give kudos to the first one because that second one isn't going to be around has that first one not done that legwork so x2 is probably a better film certainly there seems to be more money thrown at it than the original x-men film um and those sequels wouldn't be there had the first one not not done the hard yards if you like yeah that's that's fair and i think we probably also agree that the third one the massively nosedive yeah. For both as well. So Absolutely. To you to use a footballing analogy from our other pod life. Yes. It's like it's like the first one is the hard working midfield player who never gets any credit. Um and the second one is the goal scoring centre forward who gets all the credit, but Augury wouldn't be in that position had the guy not won that tackle and, and put his foot in the centre of the park. Apologies to non football people. Can I help myself? That's fine. They should know what they're getting in they're in for by now. Um, so that kind of just leaves us with your number one. My number one also happens. To, I, I may have said that Blade Runner is one of my favourite films of all time, but this this film is there as well. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Pat Roach, who actually a bit of trivia for you, appears in all three of the original trilogy. Um, in this first film, he's a Sherpa in the Ravenwood Bar, and I think he gets shot quite early. But why I've used him for the rest there is he is the German kind of mechanic for the the weird winged plane that they try and originally fly the Ark out of. And he's there, um, and there's that iconic fist fight. And I thought this tied in quite nicely of They Live. Yes, because I think true. behind They Live, you've got this iconic fist fight between Indy and the, the big German guy takes his shirt off and he kind of beckons him. And there's that brilliant moment when he's on the plane and Harrison Ford wearily kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, oh, God, not another one, which is is what to me makes that character really work is there's a kind of world-weary resignation about Indiana Jones, like um, like when he shoots the, the sword-twirling guard in Raiders of the Lost Ark as well, that sometimes he's like, I get on the hero, I really can't be bothered of this stuff sometimes. Um, but Raids of the Lost Ark, propulsive action film, not a moment in that film is wasted. And to me, every scene is a classic. Even the Basil exposition scene in the college is is, is a classic scene. Um, and I, it's one of, up there as one of my favourite films. And I can never, ever tire of watching that film. I can occasionally tire of watching Blade Runner because it, it, I, I get... People, you know, it's not the most cheerful of watch. But if I'm feeling down, Raids of Lost Ark, pop it on, and suddenly I'm in I'm in a better place because it, it never fails to entertain. And I always spot something new about it as well. Yeah, I uh, 
I, I definitely agree with you on that one. I think I sort of see what you mean in that, like Raiders has got that perfect Spielberg sort of rewatchable nature about it, where like you get to the end of it and you sit, you generally sit there and think, I could sit there and watch that again now. Yeah, that, that he does that with like quite a lot of his like Jaws is the same for me as well, and I like quite a lot of those Spielberg ones are the same. I do love like obviously. Um, Pat Roach, his character is obviously like really quite iconic for like say his shirt off, huge guy, and obviously the way he, uh, his his demise in this film is something that was etched into my mind as well from quite a young age. Even if you don't <laughs> see it, it's the you know, yeah, and and it's and I, I still and I, I appreciate I think the certification for this film has been upgraded now, but this this film was the equivalent when I went to watch it as a very young person, probably as like an A certificate, which was which was a PG back then. And I still to this day remember, I had terrifying nightmares after the climax of this film. And when people said to you, what's the scariest film other than Watership Down, um, the climax, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, terrified me. And still today, when those angelic faces turn to demons, there is a bit of a shiver as I go, this ending is is quite how many more pg film i appreciate it's not pg anymore but it was an a then end with the the nemesis having his face melted and his and his head exploded that's not going to happen in contemporary cinema is it kind of comes out of nowhere as well doesn't it in that film (laughs) it really does do you uh do you subscribe to the theory well i mean this is getting a little bit off topic do do you subscribe to the theory that uh if indiana jones had actually not got involved then everything would have happened exactly the same yeah (laughs) <laughs> they, they ultimately they get the arc yeah they get that and that's that's the big gag isn't it and that's what i love about the film there isn't there isn't a climactic showdown between indy and belloc in a deserted warehouse when they take their shirts off the the climactic battle is god effectively wiping the floor with the germans and our heroes tied to a pole with his eyes closed but yeah i get that if he doesn't if he doesn't get involved we have the same outcome but his involvement along the way is a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. We're all there for the for the ride. Yeah. As somebody, I think somebody once said to me that it's something along the lines of nothing quite works well as a Deus Ex Machina than a Deus himself. Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. Also, I, I guess you had to pick that one because you weren't going to be picking uh, Pat Roach's role in the Temple of Doom, I assume. He, he was a, a he was a thuggy guard in that, wasn't yeah, he? Rather think. questionable ethnicity, I think, going on yeah. in that one. Yeah, and he's and I think he's Gestapo in the third one too. Didn't have a lot but, of uh, cheery roles then. No, not the most cheerful <laughs> roles. But I just think the the man the shirt off wants to scrap classic, and I thought it just tied in really nice with uh, with um, the the Piper and, and Keith David scrap as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, th- my number one, and I guess it's not. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be the, the best film it's definitely not the best film we've uh, we've mentioned here this uh, this evening but um i think it's one that maybe not enough people have seen and i think deserves a little bit of shouting about his film called peanut butter falcon uh no yeah nope. uh, 2019 <laughs> it came out and it's okay. kind of a it's the story is basically about um a guy with um with down syndrome and he basically longs to be a professional wrestler. And I think it's sort of set in the sort of deep South America kind of thing. And he, he breaks out of this, um, 
effectively like care home where he lives kind of thing and tracks down this runs into this sort of troubled young man played by Shia LaBeouf and they kind of it's it's a little bit of like a heartwarming tale about the two of them going together but but the the, the kind of brings it back round is because the, there's two actual real life wrestlers in there who they meet along their journey um, in Jake the Snake Roberts and Mick Foley are in there so Mankind or however people will know him so there are rest, actual wrestlers in there but it's just one of them films that kind of I don't know maybe it just caught me at the right time when I sat down and watched it possibly on a flight again I'm trying to think now though but um, so it's one of them captive audience type things as well I know actually I'm not a big Shia Buff fan I, I quite like uh, Dakota Johnson who's like the female lead in it but um yeah, it was just one of those kind of quite fun, heartwarming sort of films that I feel like just needed a little bit of love. It sounds like it lends it a film that lends itself more to being on a flight rather than the other one you watched on the flight. Fury, <laughs> almost certainly, yeah, yeah, plays out a little bit better, bit, yeah. a little bit better that way. Um, but yeah, that was my and, and another one like I say that's probably in there for about about ninety five minutes or so. So you know, it's in and out. It's got quite a few other people. Uh, Bruce Dern's in it as well. For, um, John Bernthal, people know from all manner of TV shows and stuff that he's been in recently. So there's, there's still, you know, there's a few other names in there that people recognise. But but yeah, that was my uh, bit of an odd one to end on. It feels like now, given everything else we've just mentioned, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, it doesn't quite match up to Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and Predator and, uh, and and the likes of that. But um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Peanut Butter Falcon. I've ri- I've just written it down. I'm going to hunt it down. I think it's I think it is available on one of the streaming services at the minute. I forget which one. Cool, but yes. So um, that I guess kind of wraps up our discussion on the films. Um, where uh, if you want to give out social media or anything, I don't. Normally, I have people on who've got a podcast to promote and stuff. I don't even want to. I, I, I am merely a cog in a much larger wheel on the podcast we, we jointly appear on. So um, I, I've got my Twitter, which is Harry Hatton, um, and occasionally I, I post ranty stuff about horror films and things I've watched. But uh, but at the moment, I'm not flying solo. I'm just part of the team. Yes, I, got, I suppose we should uh, oh, not kill us otherwise, but we should promote the, uh, the Railway Men podcast. Absolutely. In all good places, all good podcast places. And if you're listening to this at the moment, there's an interview with the crew chairman coming out um, uh, very soon. Yeah, this will be coming out plenty after that. I haven't decided when this is going to come out. So, but yeah, Perfect. Okay. But yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Not a problem. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. And I've you've given me some homework: Princess Bride, which I knew anyway, and Peanut Butter Falcon to go away and watch. Oh, very good. That's uh, like I say, and um, you're welcome to come on any time as well. Brilliant. Thank you. It'd be an absolute pleasure to come back. Thanks. But uh, yeah, that's it from, from us. Like I say, I'm uh, at Aaron Lewis 33 on Twitter and then uh, Last Jedi on left because that's the handle that they had available on Instagram. And you find me on Letterboxd as well, which I'll always shout about because I love that for logging films and stuff on there as well. But uh, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>